Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Lecture 8, from the 12 Lecture Institute class series I gave back in the spring of 1989 at the University of Texas at Austin, titled Defending the Faith. In tonight's lecture, I go into detail in showing how it is that the Bible supports and confirms the LDS doctrine of deity in a number of different categories and respects. I hope you enjoy this lecture. I myself have not listened to this lecture for 30 years, and as I listened to it in preparing it for publication on the podcast, I have to admit, I did an awful lot of work and an awful lot of research in preparing this class, and I think it shows. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go with Lecture 8 from the Defending the Faith lecture series conducted by Radio Free Mormon in 1989. Play the tape. Today I have about two hours worth of material, I suppose, to go through, and I'm going to get it done in an hour. I'm bound and determined I'm going to do that. And because of that, many of the scriptures that we'll be referring to I'm not going to turn to and read, but I will give you the reference to them. So, at least for a large part of today's uh, class, you may just want to be writing down references instead of trying to look things up. There will be some places, though, where I will stop to look things up because they're that important. Today's discussion concerns the nature of God and uh, issues that are attached to that. We have many beliefs concerning the nature of God that differ from other churches, and so we're often uh, criticized for our views of God. I've divided the discussion up into four main topics. First off, the invisibility of God, or put other words, the visibility of God. Uh, number two, the image and form of God. Number three, uh, the plurality of gods, or in other words, the distinctness of the Father from the Son. And number four, the capacity for man to become as God is. And then there's just one other little thing at the end that we'll talk about, but that, that's just an, an extra. It doesn't have anything to do with the main subjects. First off, the invisibility of God. Well, now the Bible is quite clear on this issue that man cannot see God and live. If we look at Exodus 33.20, <clears throat> we find it clearly stated by God to Moses. 33.20, And he said, God said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And in John 1.18, it's stated in the New Testament, in similar words, John 1.18, uh, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we understand that John 1.18 is a mistranslation, and translated correctly, it says something a little bit different. However, in my experience, I found that that's not always the best way to start trying to answer a question for, for a non-member, to say that that's uh, mistranslated, but Joseph Smith gave us a better translation. Uh, at least not before it can be demonstrated otherwise from the scriptures of the Bible. Uh, it's very clear, interestingly enough, that man cannot see God and live, and yet the Bible is replete with instances where men have seen God and lived. And interestingly enough, in a number of these situations, the people who see God and live are surprised that they live. They say, hey, I just saw God, but I'm alive. This is amazing. It seems like they're aware of this doctrine that no man's supposed to be able to see God and live. And yet they did. Uh, some instances, and this is by no means exhaustive. Abraham, in Genesis 18, verse 1, saw God. 
Jacob in Genesis 32, verse 30. That was in his vision of the ladder into heaven, Jacob's ladder. And he names the place where he saw this Peniel. Because as he says in 32.30 there in Genesis, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Unquote. So he seems to be astonished that he could live through this. A great number of people are recorded as seeing God in Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. There was Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel. And even a, a lot of other people read about in the verse following. It says they saw God. Exodus 33.11, which this is interesting too is exactly across the page, at least in the LDS version of the Bible, it's face-to-face -face with the declaration in Exodus 33.20 that uh, no man can see God face-to-face -face and live. And yet, right across the page there in Exodus 33.11, the same chapter, it says, And Moses talked to the Lord face-to-face -face as one man speaketh unto another. So there we have an interesting discrepancy. Manoah and his wife, it's recorded in Judges 13 and 22 that they saw God and lived. Now, trivia time, who are Manoah and his wife? And you all lose. Okay, terrestrial kingdom for you. Are the mother and father of Samson. Okay, so now that you know that. But uh, uh, that Samson, as you know, was a miracle baby. He was one of a long line of miracle babies. He was born after the time that uh, his parents should have been able to have children. And it was announced to them that he would be born uh, by the Lord. And what they say is, uh, And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die, because we have seen God. What reference is that? That's Judges 13, 22. In 1 Kings 11 and verse 9, we see that Solomon uh, had seen God at least twice by this time. It talks about his appearing to him for the second time here. Isaiah saw God in uh, his vision. It shows, uh, let's see, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. And Isaiah remarks, Woe is me, I am undone, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Once again, he's surprised about seeing God and living Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, records Joshua seeing the Lord. And we know it's the Lord there, though he's only called, uh, I believe, the captain of the Lord's hosts, because Joshua bowed down and did obeisance to him and worshipped him. And the being who he worshipped did not forbid him. And if we cross-reference that to Revelations chapter 22, and verse 8 and 9, when John tried to do the same thing to an angel of the Lord, you remember what he did. He said, don't. Don't worship me. I'm just one of your fellow brethren and one of your servants. <clears throat> One of the servants of the Lord, the prophets. Uh, even, let me see, uh, a pagan king, yes, <clears throat> saw God. And that's recorded in Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, where uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire. And the, the king, and I believe it was Nebuchadnezzar, though it could have been someone else at that time, looked down and he saw not three people in the fire, but he saw four. And his words were, lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Interesting. The last one I'll uh, give to you today is, of course, Stephen, uh, the disciple Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, where he looks up and sees the Son of God standing on the right hand of God. And you'll note that a lot of these can be used to prove or to demonstrate different things from the Bible. But right now I'm just using them to show the fact that, indeed, God has been seen, and yet isn't this interesting because there's scripture saying that men cannot see God. And of course, this comes up immediately uh, when we begin with the Joseph Smith story. At least it has in my uh, experience. Joseph Smith had this vision of God and Jesus Christ. Well, wait a second. Men can't see God and live, so we know that Joseph Smith is telling a lie here. That came up once in Japan. Uh, you don't usually get arguments like that in Japan because they're generally Buddhists, 
but this one's a Jehovah's Witness. So that's how that came up. Um, there, there are some reconciling scriptures that show how both of these are true. One is in John 6, verse 46. And that one states, Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. So it's showing that a person can see God if they are of God, if they're a person of God, one who's obedient to the commandments. And uh, sometimes that's tried to be interpreted as meaning only Jesus Christ. And yet, of course, if you turn to any of these scriptures that I've given you before, or to Stephen in Acts 7, 55 and 56, which is what I gave you before, it can be shown that no, that does not only apply to Jesus Christ. Other people of God have seen God and live to tell about it. I think probably the best uh, scripture that explains it is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 67, verse 11, which puts it this way. For no man has seen God at any time in the flesh, except quickened by the Spirit of God. So that puts the condition on it quite clearly, I think, except quickened by the Spirit of God. And that must take place before a person can behold the face of God and live. Indeed, it would be imagining kind of a impotent God. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, many uh, non-Mormon Christians profess a God who is completely powerful, and yet they say he can't appear to anybody. So I don't think that makes sense. Of course he can provide a way that he can appear to people if he desires. And that way, from the scriptures, is quickening them by the Spirit of God. That pretty much does with the visibility of God argument. I think that takes care of it quite well. The next thing we go to is the image and form of God. So we believe there's a God. What kind of image and form is he, does he have? The first thing to note, which is really important in this age in which just about everybody other than us believes in a God that has no, no particular place or no shape or anything like that. He's everywhere present and some kind of great mass that fills the immensity of space. A very important scripture is John chapter 5, verse 37, and I will be turning to this one. This one's very important. You said 27? Yeah, John chapter 5, verse 27. It states this. No, excuse me, 37. Okay. Christ speaking, And the Father himself which hath sent me has borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. God, the Father, has a shape. That is the first thing to note. He has a shape. He's not some ubiquitous mass floating about with, that's immaterial. He has a shape. Now that we've established that, we can go on and see exactly what his shape is, because that's made very clear in the pages of the Bible as well. The first place to turn to, and I think the most obvious, is the very first chapter of the first book in the Old Testament. Yes. This would apparently be people uh, who weren't present at his baptism, at least. So, because those people did hear his voice. So he's not referring to Israel and I think he's just talking to these expressed people here. Okay. Expressed people who had not heard his voice. And like, like you mentioned, yeah, I don't think they would have been present as baptism when his voice was heard. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, getting to what that image is, what that shape is, that form of God is, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which everyone here should be able to quote with me. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. 
So if we can look at man and discern what image man has, we know at the same time what kind of image God has. Many people have tried to take that scripture and say, well, that's just spiritual. It refers to the moral image of God. Although there's no scriptural precedent for that, nothing at all that would support that argument, yet they want to do that for obvious reasons to support their doctrine in some kind of a spirit material essence that is God. And yet, if we turn just a couple of pages over to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3, we see there that when it's talking about Adam having given birth to his son, Seth, it uses the exact same words. Genesis in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. So in the same manner that Seth was in the image and likeness of Adam, even so Adam, or man, was created in the likeness and image of God. There's really no getting away from that unless one wants to put on blinders, and many people do. But for anyone who wants to see the truth, it's quite clear there that that is the form and shape of God. Another way to get at this, and in addition to get at the actual physical nature of God, because we've got the fact he has a shape, we've got the form, now to get at that physical nature of God, in other words, he has a glorified body of flesh and bone, as we read about in Doctrine and Covenants, section 130. The first thing that we have to do in order to get at that from the Bible is to ascertain definitely what the nature is of Christ. And the way to do that, I think, the best way to do that is to start with Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 39, where Christ appears to his apostles as a resurrected being. And I'm sure you're familiar with that, too. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, said unto them, Peace be unto you. They were scared, supposed that, he would, that they had seen a spirit. He said unto them, Why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. Christ was a resurrected being with a body of flesh and bone. He was not a spirit. Okay? In fact, he forced the apostles to come forward and make positive, not just with their eyes, but with their hands, that he indeed did have a physical body of flesh and bone. That's not all he did. He went on to eat in front of them. We skip down a verse. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. Now, I don't suppose he ate it because he was hungry after the long journey from wherever he came from. I suppose that he ate it in front of them in order to further demonstrate the fact that he did have a physical body of flesh and bones. In other words, if he had been a spirit, he would have eaten it, it would have gone right through, landed on the floor, I suppose. But that's not what happened. He ate it just as a normal person would, and it stayed within his body because it was a physical body. This isn't the only time he demonstrated the physical nature of his body. He did the same thing, uh, or it's recorded that he did the same thing in Acts 10, verse 41. And it says there, not to all the people did Christ appear, in other words, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. So, talking about other examples where Christ, as a resurrected being, ate and drank with the apostles. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, we have a telling statement. After Christ has spent 40 days with the apostles, he ascended into heaven, and there appeared two angels amongst the apostles. And they said this, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, 
shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So he will be coming down, apparently. And this should also be taken, I think, uh, to mean the same type of body. He'll be coming with the same type of body as he went into heaven. Indeed, we understand from Zechariah that this will be the case. In Zechariah chapter 14 and 13, he prophesies of the second coming of Jesus Christ with his body. In chapter 14, verses 3 through 4, he says this, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, etc. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. So he comes back with his body. He also talks about that in chapter 13, verse 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So Christ will return in the same manner and with the same resurrected body as he ascended into heaven. Now we understand from James chapter 2 and verse 26 that the definition of death is the separation of the body and the spirit. That's no news to us. I think most people would agree with that. At least most uh, Christians would believe with that anyway. That uh, death is the separation of the body and the spirit. It's worded here, James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You see there it's just a tangential reference, but it makes the point. As the body without the spirit is dead, death is a separation of the body from the spirit. Now, we know that Christ died once. He died upon the cross. He gave up his spirit. His body was separated from his spirit. And on the third day, he rose again. His spirit and his body was joined again together in a resurrected body, which he showed to his apostles, and which he demonstrated to them was indeed a physical body of flesh and bone. In order for Christ, he would have had to have died again. He would once again have had to have been subject to death, his spirit separating from his body, and yet that possibility is negated by Romans chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which states, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. I think that's the best reference for that principle. However, it's also stated in Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27, For such a high priest, referring to Christ, For such a high priest became us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needs not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. So, we know that Christ today has a physical body of flesh and bone, and that is what a resurrected being is. Colleen. What is the Catholic and Protestant explanation for the resurrection? I, I cannot speak with authority on that. Um, I think Protestants might differ amongst themselves. I really can't speak with authority on that. Uh, I know that they must believe, if they believe the, the scripture, which you know they do, certainly the obvious parts like here, that Christ did appear with a physical body. They may have felt that later on, I don't know, he lost it or something, but that really doesn't 
give an adequate explanation as to why he appeared with the physical body in the first place, if, his, if, his, if what he's trying to teach is truth, you know, and not deceive his apostles. Well, it doesn't explain why he even bothered to be resurrected in the first place. That's a good point. What's the point in being resurrected? Seems like a Does lot of wasted effort. Yes, that's a good point. It might be to show us that we could be resurrected, and so he was just temporarily taking out a body as a lesson. But what's the point in our being resurrected, either? I don't even think Because I don't think they even agree with that. Yeah. They believe that we die and go to heaven, that's it. Right. So, I think sometimes it's very easy for us to look and see obvious inconsistencies, which for some reason maybe aren't so obvious to people who are in the faith. I think, honestly, it is a great deal easier when people who have the gift of the Holy Ghost, such as us, to look around and see, see truth and see disparity. And then again, there are many good people in other churches who have just never really looked at it or thought about it. Because honestly, in most churches other than this church, they're not encouraged to think about the doctrine or the religion. It's just kind of a social thing. Um, all right, so we've got that down, right? Christ's resurrected being. All right. Now, once we have the image and form of Christ down, we can turn to uh, a number of scriptures and show that since Christ is a resurrected being with a with an immortal and glorified body of flesh and bones, even so God the Father has the same type of body. If we look in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, this is a very good scripture, very rarely used. I myself have only recently discovered it, although I've read it a number of times, I never really discovered it before. <coughs> Excuse me. Where it says this, speaking of Christ, uh, Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So Christ is the image of God. Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says a similar. Just go back to the first part of this lesson and talk about that. Because God is invisible to people, except under a very limited set of circumstances, which have happened within the limits of biblical history as well. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 4 says the same thing, but without the objectionable, invisible part, even though it is quite true, unless it's uh, taken too far. Uh, speaking of Christ, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, uh, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, here's where it mentions Christ, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And when they talk about the God of this world, are they talking about... No, that's Satan. Satan. I, I gave you a mislead into it. It is talking about Satan, then it changes to Christ in the middle, and then refers to Christ by saying he's the image of God. Okay. And I suppose the last word on this is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which states it so forcefully, it's hard to argue with. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And then going on into verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, etc. Christ is the express image of God. Therefore, as Christ is, so is the Father. And what's interesting about that is that that's actually quoting from the Athanasian Creed. But as Christ is, so is the Father. He is the express image of God. And therefore, we know that God has a body that is like Christ. And so since we know that Christ has a resurrected body of flesh and bones, we also know that God has a resurrected body of flesh and bones as well. First objection that always comes up to this in my experience is John chapter 4 and verse 24. 
which is what? God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I think the, the most effective way to deal with this objection is first off by explaining what our position is, that yes, God is a spirit, but that he is a spirit who is tabernacled in a body, a glorified body of flesh and bone. Now, at the outset, to me, that sounds kind of, uh, you know, because that's saying more than what it's saying. But after a brief examination of it, I think it becomes quite clear that that is exactly what it means. First, if we look at Hebrews 12.29, we find a, a seemingly unequivocal statement as well. God is a consuming fire. Now, there's nothing said about that. It's, it's, it's unequivocal, in other words. Hebrews 12.29, God is a consuming fire. And yet, for us to think that that's all that God is, he's no more, no less than a consuming fire, I think that that would be unreasonable. Yeah, it's in this translation. Though. Oh, is, is, it, is there a yeah, JST on that? If you read the translation, it makes so much more sense, because if you read that scripture in context, it's kind of silly. Mm-hmm. The statement, God is the Spirit, is totally out of Oh, you're talking about John 4, 24. Yeah, John 4, 24. Yes, yes. It just shifts subjects yes. and shifts back. It's the translation puts it together. And if I may be so bold as to say, I think that's probably quite an, an overt attempt by the Hellenizers to go ahead and put in, you know, the new concept of God that was being taught back into the New Testament, that they believe that God was a spirit. What? Uh, read, can you read the translation? Do you want to do that, Colleen? Yeah, okay. If you read um, 22, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. For unto such hath God promised his spirit, and they who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Yeah. See, that makes so much more sense. It does indeed. Um, however, like I said, uh, a lot of times when talking with people who are getting their first or second exposure to the church, it's not the best tactic to say, well, that's a mistranslation. Joseph Smith gave it much clearer. Um, even though it does make a lot more sense. Um, clearly makes a lot more sense. Uh, but like Hebrews 12, 29 says, God is a consuming fire. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 16 says, God is love. And yet God is not only love, God is not only light, God is not only a consuming fire, these are representations of one of his attributes. And I would submit, at least to a person who was reading this and saying that that's all that God is, that this is a representation of one of his attributes and not the whole thing, and that can be proved quite easily. Uh, As far as a syllogism goes, uh, we have a syllogism here. You say God is a spirit, yes, yet Christ in Luke 24, verses 36 through 39, says, But a spirit has not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Hence, the obvious conclusion is that Christ is not God. And through this reasoning, you've led anybody to a completely illogical conclusion, or at least a conclusion with which they do not agree at all, because they do believe Christ is God. Uh, perhaps uh, in a different way than we believe Christ is God, but we all believe that Christ is God. And so that's led them to this conclusion. Well, was Jesus Christ God as he stood there in front of the apostles? The answer is yes, and that can be shown from Hebrews 1.8, where it says, But unto the Son, S-O-N, God saith, Over and ever a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy throne. So God addressing the Son calls him God. So Christ is God and was God as he stood there. So God is a spirit. So, excuse me, first off, was Jesus God as he stood there? Yes. 
but God is a spirit. True, but Jesus is a spirit inside a body, inside an immortal, indestructible body of flesh and bones. Therefore, if Jesus is God and God is a spirit, he is an embodied spirit, just as the Latter-day Saints teach. Did everybody follow that line of reasoning? Okay, it's really pretty simple and very effective and very true. This takes us right into the Trinity. And I'm only going to deal with it briefly here, just to show you how much fun you can have with the Trinity. Christ's physical resurrection, which is clearly taught in the Bible, completely destroys, absolutely demolishes it. You just have to kind of know how to use it. You have to know how to establish that physical resurrection and then how to use it. You've already seen how it works to show that, no, God is not just a spirit. Okay? Um, two parts of the Athanasian Creed I've written up here. The first part being, we worship God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. First important part, nor dividing the substance. The second part is, such as the Father is, such is the Son. Those are two excerpts straight from the Athanasian Creed. The first part I want to bring up to you is that generally most non-Mormon Christians would say that once Christ became embodied, his Father remained in heaven as a spirit essence. All right? Most would. If not, we'll get to that. Okay? But I think most would say that. If that's true, what has happened? They have violated the Athanasian Creed because they have divided the substance of God. That's the first thing. Now, in, in light of that, many may change their stance and say, okay, well then, Christ was completely God, and God did come down in the form of Christ. All right? If that's true, then after we show about Christ's resurrection, his physical resurrection, then we've also proved that God himself, according to their belief, the Father of all, the great creator of all things, the Almighty, is now in the form of man, and is in the... And you see how we've shown that. You have to understand you've got to be looking at it from their point of view now. All right? And that's completely in violation of the Trinity or the Athanasian Creed as well. All right. So let's say that we get to that point and they back up and they say, whoa, wait a second. Maybe it isn't dividing the substance necessarily to have the Father in heaven as a spirit and to have Christ come down. Okay? Maybe that's not exactly what it means. Well, let's take that alternative, the second possibility, only the really only other possibility there is. And let's follow that out to its logical conclusion. Christ comes along, his Father's in heaven as a spirit being. That explains why Christ prayed to his Father anyway in this, in this uh, scenario. Christ becomes a physical resurrected personage with a physical body of flesh and bone. Now we come into conflict with the second provision, such as the Father is, such is the Son. Therefore, if Christ has a physical body of flesh, and using this scenario, the second one, which makes more sense, we end up by means of the Athanasian Creed with Mormon doctrine, that Christ has a literal physical body of flesh and bone, and so does the Father. Because such as the Son, as the Father is, such as the Son. Of course, you can see immediately that that can be reversed. Such as the Son is, such as the Father. Well, that's all that we're going to touch about the Athanasian Creed today. Is yes. That a, uh, is that a Catholic creed? Yes. And it's basically the foundation of the Trinity, which is what every single other uh, Christian church in the world believes, with maybe just a couple of exceptions other than us. 
I know the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe it. But when the Protestants protested against the Catholic Church, they changed a number of things, but one thing they kept with them was the Trinity. That's why just about every single other church believes it. Okay, so this is, this is important material to know. I want now to share with you about 23 scriptures that deal with this fact that Christ is a separate being from the Father. Now, a lot of these, at least a certain number of these, you should know. And the ones that are really obvious, I'm just going to uh, maybe just give a reference to it and go on. Okay? The first one is Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. What is that? Hello. What is that? Baptism. Baptism of Christ. Exactly. And that's good because not only does it show the separation of Christ from the Father, it also shows the Holy Ghost there, too, as a separate being. Christ being baptized, the voice of God coming from heaven, saying, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Ghost descending in the form of a dove. So you have the three of them right there, at one time, in one place. Okay? So that's an especially good one. Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16. I am going to have to just uh, try and do some scripture chasing here. Get there as fast as I can to each of these. 15 and 16, Christ says unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. One thing that I think we overlook when we're bringing up scriptures that support our view that they're separate is the most obvious. Christ is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. You'll never find any place else in all the universe where a son can be the same person as the Father. It doesn't work out. They're separate beings, and that title right there shows that they're separate. I did want to overlook that as I went through these. If we go to the next verse, uh, verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. What was Christ as he stood before him? He was flesh and blood. Okay. He's saying, Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. My Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. So they are showing a definite distinction between Christ and his Father. Let me state here, in case there's any question, which I doubt it, that God, though not a spirit, is not flesh and blood. That is a phrase that applies to mortality. He is flesh and bone. Okay. He has no blood. All right. Matthew 16, 17. No? That's what we just did. Matthew 19, 17 states this. And he said unto him, Christ speaking unto a person who just asked him this question, said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. All right. An obvious distinction being drawn there. Don't call me good. I'm not. There's only one that's good, and that's God. Okay? Matthew 20, 23. And he said unto them, So this is Christ speaking unto his apostles. It's so much fun where we come right into the middle of a situation with the verse. He said unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. So, these rewards are not his to give, but they're his Father's to give. A clear distinction between Christ and the Father. Matthew 26, 36. This is just one of many references that could be used for this. Then comes Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and says unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. An example where Christ prays. He's praying to the Father. What sense in the world does it make for Christ to pray to his Father if he is his Father? There's no need to communicate to someone when you're already there. Indeed, it would be misleading. 
that point is even made better, or made even better, a few verses later in Matthew 26, 39, while he's praying. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Two separate wills are here identified by Jesus Christ between his will and the Father's will. I submit to you, that is perhaps the most basic and most important distinction between two individuals, is two different wills. And here it's stated by Christ that they have different wills. John 5, 19. Christ says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also does the Son likewise. Completely distinct. If indeed Christ were the Father, he's just said here, he can't do anything. Does that make any sense to you? If he can only do what he sees the Father do, and he is the Father, he can't do anything. Okay? So this does show the separateness between the two. John 5.37, and we have we've referred to this before. 5.37, And the Father himself which has sent me has borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. Hey, wait a second. Christ is standing right there in front of them, talking to them. Presumably they're seeing his shape. And yet, he says, you've never seen the Father's, you've never heard the Father's voice or seen his shape. Obviously, they're two separate people then. John 8, 17 and 18. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men, T-W-O, the testimony of two men, bears, and the Father that sent me bears witness. So here Christ is saying that the Father and he are two, T-W-O. Otherwise, his reference to that law doesn't make any sense. John 12, 28. Christ speaking, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Once more we have a voice from heaven, like at the baptism of Christ. <clears throat> but here's another reference to a voice coming from heaven in response to Christ's prayer. John 14, 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. One doesn't go unto oneself. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. We, our. This is talking about more than one person. The Father and the Son are two. T-W-O. John 14, 24. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings, and the word which he hears is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. The word which he hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. That was John 14, 24. John 14, 28. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father. Note that first part. I go unto my Father. Going to his Father. He's not going to himself, he's going to his Father. But then listen to the, the tag at the end of this. For my Father is greater than I. That really drives it home. You can't be greater than yourself. The Father is greater than I. That kind of ties in with the saying, don't call me good, there's one good. And that's my Father. John 20, 17. This is obviously going to be a two-parter, no matter what I said at the beginning. 
Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Christ ascending to his Father, Christ ascending to God. He could not ascend to himself. That is absolutely ridiculous. <clears throat> and don't let any, anybody get away with saying it's a mystery either, because that's equally as ridiculous. Acts 2.33 Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, <clears throat> speaking of Christ being at the right hand of God, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. So that verse speaks two ways that Christ is separate, sitting at the right hand of God and having received something from the Father. <clears throat> Acts 7, 55 and 56, you should know that one by heart, that's where Stephen sees Christ standing on the right hand of God. 1 Corinthians 8 and 6, Eight and six. First Corinthians eight six. But to us there is but one God. Note that one God, the Father, of whom are all things we in Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And what is one plus one? It's two. It really is. Don't let anybody else tell you differently. An interesting cross reference to that is found in Ephesians, where we find all three of them mentioned in this way. And it's funny because this scripture is used to talk about one, one church, one faith, one baptism. Talking about baptism can also be used in this way. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, and then in verse 6, one God and Father of all. And so there we have one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. And that's three. That's three. 1 Corinthians 15.28 has this to say. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, it's talking about Christ, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So here we'll talk, talks about Christ being subject or subdued unto God, which could not happen if Christ were God. He could not be subject unto himself. Hebrews 1.3 also speaks about Christ being at the right hand of God. I won't read it for you. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, speaks another time about the voice from heaven. And this is where Peter's recounting his experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Where Christ was there, he became uh, transfigured, hence the name of the mountain, and he heard the voice of God coming from heaven from the cloud that came over the mountain. As I counted that, that was about a total of 23 separate, distinct, and I think very powerful references from the New Testament showing that Christ and God are separate and distinct individuals. Mike. What chapter in 2 Peter? I think it was 1. Let me look. 1, yeah, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Sure. Now I want to deal with a few objections that are commonly made. The first one, and these are objections uh, concerning the fact that they're separate individual people. In other words, people who would like to maintain the, uh, the pagan philosophy of the Trinity quote extensively from the latter chapters of Isaiah, particularly 43, 44, and 46. And let me give you a few of those. First one's 43.10. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Okay, that's the first one, found in the latter part of Isaiah. This is used to substantiate their notion of the Trinity, and has also been used to show, well, 
you guys can't uh, become as God because there's not going to be any God formed after that. Okay? Another one is in 44, Isaiah 44, 6 and 8. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Verse 8, is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Uh, let's do for chapter 45. Let's not leave that one out. Uh, verse 5, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. And verse 22, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Uh, chapter 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Whenever someone starts quoting scripture to support their idea of the Trinity, almost invariably, at least half, if not more, are going to come from these chapters of Isaiah. Okay. And they sound pretty explicit. And they are very explicit. However, the critics of the, our doctrine fail to take into account the context in which these are being stated. <coughs> Excuse me. Which a simple reading of the chapters involved will make clear. God is not at this point to the unruly children of Israel that he has to deal with, trying to declare to them the situation of things as it pertains throughout the universe. What he is talking to them about is, why he's talking to them at all here is because they've taken to using idols again. And what he's stating is that those idols are not God's, and that only he is God, and he is the one to be worshipped. Not any of these idols. As a matter of fact, in that Isaiah 43.10, there's a verb used there that sounds kind of funny, unless you know they're talking about idols. I've, I've read this before. It says, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Talking about forming a God. Yeah. This kind of reminds me, uh, I had a friend over in Vietnam whose wife was Buddhist. He was Christian. Mm-hmm. And so she set up a little altar and Christ right next to Buddha so she could worship both of them. Uh -huh. It sounds like this is what he's saying. Don't put any other gods beside me. He may well be saying that. He may well. I know certainly saying don't worship any of those, those idols. And of course you know that what he's calling an idol here is God, right? Because that's what they're called. They're called gods. That's certainly what the, this friend of yours wife would call. wouldn't call it an idol. See, generally when people worship idols, they don't call them idols. They call them gods. It's when the, the prophets of God talk about them that they're called idols. Um, but just to show you some of that context, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 12, God speaking, I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Okay. Therefore, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. So all he's saying here is referring saying, look, back in the time when you didn't have any of these idols, when there was no strange God among you, I saved you, I did all these wonders, so you know that it's not them. Okay? You know I'm good enough by myself without these idols. Chapter 44, verses 9 and 10. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who has formed a god or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Then he goes on in the next seven verses, and he talks about how a god is made out of wood. And the same piece of wood that they make a god out of is used for different purposes. It's used for fire to bake things and to warm people. And uh, then he concludes in verses 17 through 19, and the residue thereof, in other words, the residue of this wood that he's already used to uh, make fires and cook food, the residue thereof, he makes a god. Even his graven image, he falls down to it and worships it and prays unto it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. 
They have not known nor understood, for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. And then considers in his heart, neither is their knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? So he's showing, I think, very forcefully how, how silly it is for them to think that there's any, any saving or power in a piece of wood. Another place where he talks about it, and this is note, throughout all these four chapters where these statements come saying, I am God, there is none other, there is no other God but me, there is no God formed before me nor after me, I am the only one, worship me. Throughout all this is the references to the idols to show the proper context. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 1 through 2, uh, Bel bows down. Now he's, he's listing idol names. Bel is the name of an idol. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. And Nebo is the name of another idol. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy. They stooped. They bowed down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Once again, showing they have no power. Themselves are gone into captivity. And verses 5 through 9. And this is the last I'll bore you with this, but I want to make it very clear and give you the references that this is indeed just talking about idols. And this is important that you understand this and get the references because these are almost invariably, invariably brought up, these verses in Isaiah, in order to demonstrate or support the position that there's only one God throughout the universe. Uh, 5 through 9. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag, and weigh silver in the balance, and hire a goldsmith, and he makes it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. So first he's talking about wood, now he's talking about gold. They bear him upon the shoulder, they carry him, and set him in his place, and he stands. From his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember into mind, O ye transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. So here I read that reference talking about an idol and took it right into the reference which follows it about he's the only God. And now doesn't it make so much more sense? Isn't it clear from the context what he is talking about? As a matter of fact, let me just share this with you that it's very interesting that up until the time of Moses, we find varied references in the Old Testament to the plurality of gods. We find that us make man in our image, and behold, the man has become as one of us. And when it came to the, uh, the Tower of Babel, let us go down and confound their languages. So we find these interesting references to the plurality of gods. Then, as soon as the law of Moses takes effect, because of the wickedness and the rebelliousness of the children of Israel, we find a great lack of any such references until the New Testament. And then, boom, we've got them all over the place again. Just like I shared with you, okay? I think it's quite clear that the reason that they were given lesser knowledge is because they were not obedient enough to deserve it. And it seems like as far as doctrine goes, as far as uh, real doctrine goes, from the time the Law of Moses was instituted until the time it was revoked, there wasn't a whole lot given. It was just going from day to day, doing the things that you need to do, trying to keep you on the wrong track so you don't fall away, and it seems like in every other page of the Bible where we're under the law of Moses, it's stay away from the idols. Because that's what they kept doing. They kept going back to the idols. Indeed, we know that that was one, that was one of the things that led to Solomon's downfall. 
That's that objection. Got a little more time left. Let me deal with this one too. John chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, everybody quote that to me all together. Or anybody. Go ahead. Come on. John chapter 1 and 1. Yes. The Word was with God. Right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. People will use that to show, hey, this is the Trinity being stated. No, it's not. That is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. The only way you get the Trinity out of that is if you come to it with the Trinity in your mind, and you're going to impress it on that. Let me tell you, the only way that that scripture can be read so as to make any sense at all is if there are two gods. That is the only way that that makes sense. In the beginning was the Word, and we learn later from verse 14, that was Christ in the beginning of the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was. And indeed, many translations have uh, rendered that word used there as to mean to say, was God-like, or was perfect, in order to... Uh, try and give a more accurate uh, rendering, at least in their opinion, of the word used there. And yet, even as it stands of the King James Version, the only way that can be understood to make sense is that there are two gods. And yet people coming at it with this idea, no, 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 there's only one God, they get all confused with it and try and see in it some idea of a trinity. One last one. This is often used. This is objection number three we're dealing with, which is found in John 10, verse 30, where Christ says, I and the Father are one. I'm sure you've heard that used. I and the Father are one. If we look in Vine's dictionary, it's called Vine's Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words, page 137 of the New Testament. Under one, we find this definition. Metaphorically, union and accord. Metaphorically speaking, union and accord. And it gives as a direct reference to that, e.g. John 10.30. And then it gives a few others. Union and accord. This is no Mormon. Vine is no Mormon, believe me. He's a great scholar, and it's a very well-respected word. The, uh, the word being used there, by the way, in Greek is heis, H-E-I-S. In Latin, the word that is used there is unum. And we find Tertullian, Oregon, and Novatian, early Christians, who also were not Mormons, by the way, in case that needs to be stated, uh, talking about what that word unum means. Yeah. It's our national motto. Exactly. E pluribus unum. All right. Many people unity. Exactly. And that's exactly what it means. Unity. And it's the neuter form of that, which means it doesn't mean uh, unity of body or substance. It means unity of purpose or concord or harmony, like Vine says. Tertullian observes that the expression is unum, one thing, not one person, and he explains it to mean unity, likeness, conjunction, and of the love that the Father bore to the Son. And that's found in his work against Prexas, uh, P-R-E-X-A-S, chapter 22, page 513. Oregon says this, let him consider the text. In other words, he's going to show what unum means. He says, any person has a question about what unum means in John 1030, let him consider the text, all that believe were of one unum heart and of one unum soul, which is found in Acts 4.32. And then, going back to the quote, and then he will understand this, I and my Father are one unum. So he says, just consider that text. It's the same word being used, and then you'll understand what it means when it says, I and my Father are one, using the same word unum. Finally, an ovation says, quote, one thing unum 
being in the neuter gender signifies an agreement of society, not a unity of person. And he explains it by this passage in Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 8. He that plants and he that waters are both one unum. So that's another use of the word unum there. And that's from, I didn't give you the reference from Oregon. Oregon, that reference was against Selsum, book 8, page 386. This reference from Novation is from the same work against Selsum, uh, chapter 27, page 99. That may have been before chapter 8, page 386. This is, yeah from Oregon. We're going to have to close now. This is definitely going to be a two-week weaker, no matter what I said at the beginning. So, let's close on that. And next week we'll go on into the capacity for man to become like God, a few other things, and then uh, maybe we'll be able to go on into the next subject after we're done with that. Well, that concludes Lecture 8 from my Institute class on Defending the Faith given by yours truly, Radio Free Mormon, back in the spring of 1989 at the University of Texas at Austin Institute Building. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to bringing you the last four lectures in this 12-lecture series. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.